Now, as we venture into this section of Paul's letter, as usual, I think some recap is necessary in order to remind ourselves of the context and circumstances around Paul's writing. I don't know if most of you realize this, but we started this trip through Philippians two years ago. Well, back then, we learned that from chapter 1, Paul, together with the believers of Philippi, were partners in the gospel. What that meant was that the Philippians gave aid to Paul in his missionary work. They helped him to advance the cause of Christ. They joined with him in doing God's work by supplying him with the kinds of things that would be helpful to a traveling preacher. And so they could be rightly called partners with him in the gospel. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So you see, the Philippians held a special place in Paul's heart because of the love and friendship that they displayed through their helpfulness with his God-given mission of spreading and defending the gospel. Now that's what we saw in chapter 1. Paul goes on to explain in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, and I quote, In the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So this letter opens and ends with Paul thanking the Philippians and expressing his gratitude to them for sending him help and supplies for his missionary journeys. So that's the overarching context context for Paul's writing in this section of Philippians. Now what we'll be focusing on this morning and next Sunday morning, Lord willing, are two ideas that Paul talks about during his expression of thanks to the Philippians. Those two ideas are unwavering contentment and the blessedness of giving. So this morning we'll look at the uh, unwavering contentment and next Sunday morning we'll look at the blessedness of giving. Now Paul talks about unwavering contentment in verses 10 to 13 so that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. The first thing I want us to understand is that when Paul speaks about being content, it is not his main point in this portion of his letter. It's more of an aside that gives clarification about his main point. To put that another way, Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 to 20 were not written with the primary purpose of expounding, explaining, or teaching about being content. Rather, as Paul makes his primary point he feels the need to offer some clarification so as not to give the wrong impression about what he's saying. So let me show you what I'm talking about. And listen for my emphasis as I read. Let's read again what Paul says from verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And now jump down to verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians know, yourselves know, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So you see, Paul's overall purpose in this section was to express his joyful gratitude to the Philippians for their generosity. And to do so, he had to make reference to the supplies that they sent for him. However, he wanted to make it clear that his own comfort and satisfaction was not why he was rejoicing. His happiness about the Philippians' partnership wasn't because it meant he would have physical things to make him comfortable. No, Paul makes clear. He knows how to be content regardless of what he has or does not have because of the strengthening of Christ. Rather, what makes him rejoice is the good or the blessing or the credit that would come to the Philippians as a result of their generosity and partnership with him in the gospel. Now that's the idea we're going to examine next week. But for today, we're going to focus on this idea of being content no matter what. While Paul's words on being content are an aside meant for clarification of his main point, there's still obviously great worth to stopping to delve into this idea of being content in any situation that we find ourselves in. So that's our big idea this morning, and it's a simple one. With God's help, we can be content no matter what. So I think the obvious place to start would be defining what is meant by the word content. Now, as you know, the book of Philippians, as well as, as, well as all of the New Testament, was written in Greek. And so the Greek word used here for content was autarkes, which means self-sufficient, strong enough, or possessing enough to not need outside aid or support. Now, the first, first thing I noticed when I read that definition in the concordance was just how inappropriate the word seems, especially when used by a mere man. I mean, what mere man can claim to be self-sufficient, needing no outside help or support, being strong enough in and of oneself? Frankly, it sounds blasphemous, because only God can truly lay claim to these statements of self-sufficiency. And it doesn't help that this word autarkes is only used once right here in all of Scripture. So we can't compare and contrast to how it's used in other passages the way that we normally would. But that's not really a problem because we know the Apostle Paul was not being blasphemous. No one who is familiar with Paul's life or his writings would assume that he meant to, co- to convey here that he was in and of himself a self-sufficient and needless being on par with God himself. That just would not make sense for Paul. Of course, Paul knew that he needed things like air and water, food, shelter, clothing, all of these things. And so the sense in which Paul is speaking when he says he is self-sufficient is simply that he has learned how to get by with less. He has learned to use his own hands and own means to get by on very little. He doesn't need to be lavishly supplied, supplied in order to function. He doesn't rely upon others giving him stuff in order to get his missionary work done. He has learned to do his work with the bare minimum of what is needed. And he can do so without grumbling or complaining. Even if there are things that he lacks, Paul is okay. 
Let me give you an illustration. Someone who is not, in this sense, self-sufficient might be tired after journeying to a faraway country. And they would want lots of money to buy a room in a hotel and pay for a hot meal. Maybe get some rice and pie with chicken and a side of coleslaw. Maybe a nice comfy bed with ergonomic pillows and ergonomic mattress so that they don't get sore back. Air conditioning. Perhaps they might even visit the spa to get someone to wash and massage their feet. Now think of Paul coming off a long journey. Being tired, he would probably just find a nice shady tree outside. Maybe pick a fruit and eat it. Get his hands on a large rock and rest his head on that and lay down and take a nap. He wouldn't be overly concerned about a sore back. And he certainly wouldn't be concerned about his dirty feet. You see, this is the sort of attitude Paul must have had as a man who says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You see, Paul could bear having very little without grumbling or being depressed or frustrated. Now, does that mean he was not uncomfortable? Well, of course he was uncomfortable. But his comfort was not his primary concern as he risked life and limb to bring the gospel to people's ears. The gospel was simply more important. So to summarize, this is how we ought to interpret Paul's use of the word content. It's about being able to get by with little and bear with the discomfort of lack or neediness without grumbling or complaining. So before we go on, ask yourself, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person that grumbles or complains if they don't get the foot massage and the hot meal? Are you the kind of person who would be content to sleep under a tree with a rock for a pillow? If these are the kind of circumstances that God placed you in, would you grumble against God? Well, I know what kind of person I am. I know my own weaknesses. I like to be comfortable, perhaps more than I should. So know that the Lord has been working on me even as I prepare this sermon. I actually sometimes wish I could be more like our brother Jonathan. <laughs> I don't know how many of you know this, but years ago, after we finished secondary school, Jonathan and I worked as laborers on a construction site. We were helping to build a three-story house. So as you can imagine, it was tiring and physically demanding work. So when lunchtime came, obviously we would want to rest. Well, every day after eating his lunch, Jonathan would find a plank of wood, and he would drag a large concrete block under his head, and he would lie down and he would take a nap. So Jonathan, in effect, did use a rock for a pillow. And that was enough for him. And as for food, oh gosh, for breakfast every day for weeks, Jonathan would eat a flask of oats every single day. No omelette with cheese, diced green peppers, tomatoes, parsley and onions, maybe a few fried bakes and a side of bacon. No. Oats, daily. And lunch, a Zephyrin's Bakery's health cob. The whole health cob, by the way. And a, can, and a can of canned sausages. He would stuff them inside and eat it like a sandwich. Man did this every day for weeks. I never heard him complain. 
But you see my point. What kind? What kind of person are you? <laughs> Do you complain and grumble at discomfort? You get frustrated and annoyed easily when you lack something. If so, then the Holy Spirit through the scriptures is addressing you this morning. You need to learn in whatever situation you are in to be content. Well, what more can we say about this? Why should we be content no matter what? I mean, someone could argue that just because Paul says he's able to live with less, it doesn't mean we have to be able to do the same. Someone could say that just because Jonathan can eat oats every day doesn't mean that we all have to eat oats every day. But of course we don't have to eat oats every day to show how content we can be. There's nothing wrong with bacon and eggs. But what is wrong is having a bad attitude when we are placed in situations where we did have to eat oats every day. Or if we lacked some other thing. So we should take the time to answer the question definitively. Why is it wrong for us to grumble or complain when we lack something? Why is it wrong for us to not be content no matter what? Well, to answer this question, let's look at the experiences of the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. Now this should be somewhat fresh to us since we're currently working through the book of Exodus with Pastor John for our evening services. And one of the reoccurring themes of that book is the grumbling and discontentment of the Israelites. God, in keeping his promises to Abraham, had rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt with great displays of power. And he was leading them through the wilderness to a land where they would be free, secure, and blessed, so long as they obeyed his commands. However, as the Israelites journeyed through the wilderness, we see that they began to grumble and complain about the situation that they were in. Turn with me to Exodus 16, verses 1 to 3. Exodus 16, 1 to 3. It reads, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to him, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in, in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So, the Israelites had been placed by God. Remember, it was God who led them out into the wilderness, they had been placed by God into a situation where they faced lack. They lacked food and water. They lacked permanent shelter since they were now living in tents. They lacked security since they were wandering outside the walls of a fortified city. And you could probably go on and on with a list of things that they lacked. Now we know that God would soon supernaturally provide for them in all of these concerns, but I'm getting ahead of myself. What we see from the Israelites as they face these circumstances of lack is blatant and unapologetic discontentment. And we should notice, they weren't just grumbling about being hungry. They were grumbling about their lack of comforts. They don't just want food, but they want tasty food. See how they reference the meat pots they used to have? 
It's like if you had no choice but eat oats every day, you might grumble and complain about how you wish you could have some KFC or some Shafet or some Maps. So you see, these people weren't just trying to survive. They were seeking pleasure. We know this because right afterward, God gives them the manna from heaven. So God addressed their concerns about hunger. The manna was supernaturally provided for them such that now they would never go hungry. So if you assume that they were only grumbling about hunger, then that means you would expect them to stop grumbling now, right? Well, no. Even with the provision of the manna, they grumble again. We see this in Numbers 11 from verse 4. It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. They weren't satisfied with God's provision of the manna. Furthermore, they were repulsed by it. They weren't content to get by with the manna that God had graciously given them. Even though it was nutritious and it filled their bellies. They wanted pleasure. The text says that they had a strong craving. Well, remember we want to see if discontentment and grumbling is acceptable to God. Well, let's read on to see how God responded to their lack of contentment. Numbers 11 verse 10 says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Now jump down to verse 18, where God says, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not just eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? Jump down again to verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. Brothers and sisters, the anger of the Lord was kindled against those who craved the pleasurable food against those who grumbled against him and showed discontentment with his provision of the manna. So the obvious answer to the question is, yes, it is wrong to grumble and complain. It is wrong to not be content no matter what. God punished that behavior in the Israelites. 
Now, someone might object and say, well, it was wrong for the Israelites to not be content because God did provide them with the manna. But I have a right to complain because God hasn't provided for me. And I'm sure that if you looked at your life objectively, you would see that God has provided for you. You may not have all the comforts and pleasures that you crave, or even the things that you think you need. But if you are in Christ, God does provide for you. He promised he would. Still, someone might object and say, well, yeah, the Israelites were wrong to complain about the manna, but they had a right to grumble and complain before they got the manna, when they lacked food and water. After all, they would die without those things, right? So while it's wrong to complain about non-serious things like lacking comforts, it's acceptable to complain about serious lack that can lead to death, right? Wrong. <laughs> Again, look at the Israelites. Exodus 17, verses 1-7. It says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the, pe of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Friends, is it right that we test the Lord? No. For it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is wrong that we would grumble and complain about our circumstances as if challenging God to do something about them. As if he is at fault for putting us in the situation that we're in. And this is true even in situations where we are so needy that we fear for our very lives. It is wrong to be discontent. And this is so because being discontent displays a lack of trust in God. Friends, this is ultimately what it comes down to. Discontentment is ultimately a lack of faith in God. It is ultimately the thought or attitude that God either cannot provide or that God is not enough to satisfy us. Again, we see this faithfulness, this faithlessness rather, we see it being displayed by the Israelites. Remember when God gave them the manna and told them only to gather enough for their needs for the day and not to store any back for the next day? Well, why did God do that? He did it to test their faith and subsequently display to all their lack of faith. The reason they were not to collect any more than what they would need for the day and not to save any back was so that they would need to rely on and thus believe that God would send more manna the next day. So by collecting two or three days worth, they were expressing doubt that God would be faithful to send the manna day after day after day. 
Well, we know what happened. When they stored up and kept back manna, it bred worms and stank. God was clearly displeased with their lack of faith and their inability to be content with just one day's worth of food. The point, friends, is we need to examine ourselves to see whether we are like the Israelites, worrying and complaining about the things that we lack as if we doubt God's ability to take care of us, or grumbling about our lack of comforts and pleasures like the Israelites did about the loss of the tasty food that they used to eat in Egypt. Do we trust in the strength of God? Or do we think that his hand is too short? Are we satisfied with what he has provided? Or do we crave more comforts and get angry when we can't have them? Brothers and sisters, we need to endeavor to not be like the Israelites, but rather be like Paul, content in every situation, able to get by with little and bear with discomfort. Now before we go on, I want to point out something significant that Paul says as he tells the Philippians that he knows how to be content in every situation that he's in. So far we've been looking at contentment in the context of neediness or lack. But notice that Paul does not limit his statements to circumstances of lack. Read again his words from Philippians chapter 4 verse 12 and listen for my emphasis. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You can all understand why someone would need the strength of God to have contentment when they're needy. But why would God's strengthening be necessary when you're not needy? In fact, when you're wealthy. Why would Paul say that he knows how to abound? After all, being broke is the hard part. Being rich is easy, right? And Paul says that he has learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance. I get learning how to face hunger and need, but learning how to face plenty and abundance? It sounds strange, doesn't it? Well, consider, brethren, that being well supplied and having all the comforts you can dream of is just as dangerous to your soul as neediness. What do I mean by that? Well, remember we just established that faithlessness is at the root of discontentment with God's provision. Well, what happens to the poor man who is faithless? His faithlessness in the face of his poverty causes anxiety and frustration and grumbling against God. This is sin. Well, on the other hand, what happens to the rich man who is faithless? His faithlessness in the face of his wealth causes prideful boasting, spiritual lethargy, and disregard of God. This is also sin. So if you don't think that you need God's strengthening to have contentment in the face of being wealthy, then you're in big trouble. When your heart is not trusting in God and not satisfied with His provision, then being wealthy and comfortable will cause you to sin in your life just as if you were poor. The sin may manifest itself in different ways, but its root is the same. The poor man grumbles, complains, and puts God to the test because he does not trust in God and is not satisfied with his provision. The rich man, on the other hand, scoffs at God and forgets him because he also does not trust in God and is also not satisfied with his provision. Rich people who don't trust in God trust instead in what? Their riches. 
Their comforts blind them to the reality that they live in a fallen world and it becomes easy for them to forget God and pay no attention to his commands. Their comfort cushions them from the reality that this world is passing away and that they are dying along with it. And so they're content to remain in this world rather than seeking the world to come. Their comfort makes them blissfully ignorant and happy to live their entire lives storing up wealth and possessions for themselves on the sinking sand of this decaying world. To the rich man, the provision of God seems unnecessary. After all, in his mind, he has everything he needs in his possessions. Remember the parable that our Lord told in Luke chapter 12. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So, the, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Such wealthy people are not capable of being satisfied with what God has to offer when they are caught up in their earthly carnal pleasures. When God offers to exchange their earthly cravings for heavenly righteousness, that to them is the most unattractive idea in the world. They love their cravings. They love that feeling of independence from God that in their minds comes with being wealthy. They feel that wealth brings security and power. Christ said that the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, the faithless rich of this world are not interested in meekness. They crave power. The power to call the shots in their own lives. There's no authority over them. No one to be accountable to. They can just spend some money and get what they want. To them, there is no satisfaction to be found in God and what he would give them. But only that which they can get for themselves through their riches. This is why our Lord said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Their trust is in their wealth and not in God. Their satisfaction is in their wealth and not in God. They cling to their wealth and they reject God right up until the day they die. Consider also that wealth is not always a sign of God's blessing. Wealth and abundance can also be God's wrath and judgment. We saw this already in this very sermon. Remember how God dealt with the grumbling Israelites who had the strong craving for meat? He gave them all the meat that they could eat. And more. I'm sure that for the two days that those wicked Israelites were collecting that quail, they felt rich and blessed. But the abundance of the meat was God's judgment on them. God said that because of their discontentment, he would give them so much meat to eat that it would be coming out of their noses. It would become loathsome to them. And what ended up happening? While the meat was yet between their teeth, they were struck down by a plague. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're blessed. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10 says this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pines. Brothers and sisters, pray to God that if he ever causes you to be rich, that he keeps your contentment rooted and founded in Christ Jesus. Pray that you never become so comfortable that you forget why you exist. You exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You don't exist to chase after your own pleasures. Pray that your wealth and comforts are never so appealing that they cause you to be unwilling to give them up in order to follow Christ. You should be chasing after his glory and not your own. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. There's nothing wrong with having comforts or being wealthy. But like Paul, we must know how to abound. We must know how to face plenty and abundance. We must be able to view our comforts rightly. We need the strengthening of God in order to not make idols of our comforts. So now we've seen what contentment is. We've seen how not having contentment is sinful. And we've seen how even abundance and wealth are circumstances in which we need the strength of God. So we know what we need to do now. We know what is required of us. If being content is, at its root, about trusting God and being satisfied with his provision, then discontentment is sinful because at its root is a lack of trust in God and a lack of satisfaction with his provision. So, we should trust God in every situation that we find ourselves in and always be satisfied with what he's given us. So what does that mean, practically? Well, for example... It means you don't grumble when your car breaks down. You can get by without it. Your car breaking down doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It isn't an excuse for showing a lack of faith in Him. I mean, sure, now you're catching the bus. Are you saying you can't possibly be satisfied with catching the bus? Are you saying that God must give you more or He doesn't love you? Do you think that now that because you've got to walk through town between two bus terminals... That gives you the right to grumble against God? It doesn't. And you can apply what I just said to anything in your life. A better job, a better spouse, singleness, your house, your clothing. It doesn't matter what it is. God requires that we trust Him in any situation that we find ourselves in and that we're always satisfied with what He's given us. Now, I'm not trying to be flippant about the challenges that we face. But we cannot allow ourselves to get comfortable with the idea that grumbling against God is acceptable. It is not. God demands faith and trust from his people. Now, the question that immediately arises, at least in my mind, is this. Am I showing discontentment with what God has given me if I seek to change my circumstances? The answer is no. God only demands that you be willing to remain in the situation that you're in. 
God only demands that you trust him and find your satisfaction in his provision. God may choose to bless you with better circumstances. And there's nothing wrong with praying for better circumstances. We heard in last week's sermon that we should let our requests be made known to God. So there's nothing wrong with requesting that God gives us better jobs or better transportation or whatever it is. But if God chooses to leave us where we are, will we trust him or will we grumble? If we aren't granted better circumstances and comforts, we must be able to genuinely say, your will be done, Lord. It is enough. Let me give an example to make this point more clear. Many Christians go through their entire lives without having their parents or relatives disown them or even try to kill them because of their testimony for Christ. I don't think that's happened to anyone in this room. It could be wrong. Many Christians are always able to go to church publicly, in peace, and they face no violent opposition. Many Christians are wealthy and have a lot of possessions and comforts. By global historical standards, all of us have many possessions and comforts. Yet, recognize that these are all things, relationships, safety, possessions, that Christ told us we would need to be willing to give up and leave behind in order to follow him. So is it sinful to have a cordial relationship with your family members, your unbelieving relatives? No. Is it sinful to be safe when you go to church? No. Is it sinful to be wealthy? No. You see, for many Christians, and again, I think this is true for all of us here, the Lord has not put us in a situation where we must give up these things for his sake. And perhaps we will go our entire lives without that being the case. God simply demands that we be willing to. He simply demands that if he ever brings it to pass that our families hate us because of our testimony for Christ and demand that we renounce our faith or face jail or death, he demands that we be satisfied to take the path of persecution rather than denying him to, to maintain our familial relationships. He simply demands that if violent persecution comes to us, we will accept it as those who understand that since they hated our master first, they're going to hate us. Instead of grumbling against God for putting us in a situation where our lives are at risk, we should be willing to accept it joyfully. He simply demands that if a hurricane or something was to come through here and destroy all of our wealth, that we would still gladly trust him and be joyfully satisfied. That we will be able to say like Job, when he fell on the ground and worshipped, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what God requires of us. So friends, may God never cause us to face these situations. And we can even pray that he keeps us from them. But whatever happens, we must still be able to be content in whatever situation we're in. We need to be like Paul, who can say he doesn't need things or better circumstances in order to be content. I know this is not an easy thing to do. After all, our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. Our flesh loves comforts. It craves earthly pleasures. Cravings often feel inescapable. 
Like the only way to quell our cravings is to get that which we crave. In light of this, how can we find contentment? How can we be satisfied enough in Christ to the point where we can get by on little and not feel as though we need possessions and comforts in order to have joy? Paul tells us, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul was able to get by on little because of the strengthening of Christ Jesus. Friends, true contentment is not a matter of some kind of man-centered power. It's not simply about preferring a simple life. You know that there are some people who prefer not to have a big house filled with many possessions and comforts. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about true contentment which must be Christ-empowered. True contentment must be founded on and rooted in a satisfaction with Christ. Now what does that look like? Well, when we hold fast to the truth that the Son of God came in the flesh and lived a perfect life on our behalf, offering to God the obedience that we failed to offer, and then sacrificially He went to the cross to be punished for the crimes that we commit against God, dying in our place, paying totally our debt to God, and then rising from death, having defeated power and defeated its power rather, and freeing us from our bondage to sin, and ascending into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, being given all authority in heaven and on earth to rule and judge, making intercession for us to the Father, and preparing a place for us to live with Him eternally, when He comes again to judge all men, all men and defeat His enemies finally, when He comes to remove all sin, all wickedness, all evil, to make for us a world in which there's only joy and gladness, health and safety, love and peace. Brothers and sisters, when our lives are defined by faith in these truths, when we meditate on them day by day, when we live according to those truths, when we apply these truths to ourselves as those who are hidden in Christ, when we make these promises from Christ our own and cling to them in faith, how can we be anything but content? How can we be anything but satisfied? When you really understand who Christ is, what He has done, and what He is going to do. When you know that you have a great reward stored up in heaven, and that you will inherit the earth, you can get by with a small unfurnished house. That ain't nothing. When you know that one day you are going to recline that table with Jesus and all his people eating bountifully and drinking from God's kitchen. You can get by for now with less tasty foods, less exciting foods. When you know that your sin has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. And that just a little while longer you will be made perfect and glorified like your saviour. You can be content. This is what it means to have a satisfaction that is empowered by and rooted in Christ. Christ has given us his spirit to remind us of the promises he has made and the glorious future that he has secured for us. These truths empower our contentment. These truths provide a solid rock upon which our contentment and satisfaction can be built that no amount of lack or no amount of abundance in this life can shake it 
and make it crumble. You know, Paul knew what kind of man he was. He knew that he was a prideful, hateful, murderous enemy of God. And then he was saved on that road to Damascus. And for the rest of his life, he would come to learn just how glorious Jesus was and how great a price was paid to redeem him. Paul knew Christ's power to save, and he knew his promises were sure. Paul had this firm foundation in his heart. And on that firm foundation, he built his contentment. This is how Paul was able to say he'd learn how to be content in whatever situation he was in. May we also remember the promises of Christ. Meditating on who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. So that whatever happens, we can trust in him and be satisfied with his provision.